This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Tom Pierce speak on Shepherding the Next Generation. Tom Pierce was the National Director of Shepherding the Next Generation, an initiative focused on equipping church leaders to strengthen families. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2019 General Assembly. Let's listen as Tom Pierce speaks on shepherding the next generation. Rather than introduce myself first, I'm going to tell you a story. And in that story, it's going to give you a little bit of a background about why I do what I do, what shepherding is all about. So forgive me if you don't like stories. You're getting one anyway. Um, and uh, I give every pastor uh, or teaching elder permission to use this story because I stole it from somebody else myself. Um, it's actually it's an ancient fable that I've put myself into and given it a little bit of a modern twist. So it may look or sound familiar if you're into ancient fables. But I had the privilege when I was in high school to work on the Sioux Reservation in South Dakota with a missionary. Um, that part of this story is absolutely true. I did do that. And one of my first opportunities in um, being out on the reservation and working with this missionary was he wanted me to go out onto the reservation and pick up a widow, uh, a Native American, and bring her to a church activity and being 16 years old and at that point of really being excited about driving the idea of being able to drive somebody else's car on a reservation sounded pretty great and so he is telling me all about what we are about to do and he is explaining everything about his car and then he quick draws me a map of how to get from point A to point B. And he throws me the keys to his car. Now this is cool. And I'm having the greatest time until nothing on that map looks anything like where I am. And you can tell by my age, or at least my gray hair, that this is way before GPS. This is way before cell phones. I'm out there by myself trying to figure out how in the world am I going to find where I'm supposed to be. 
And as I'm walking along and looking, it, I, I'm able to see under the shade of a tree an elderly Indian gentleman just sitting there enjoying the shade. And so I quick stop the car, stand up on the driver's side of the car and speak over to him and say, sir, can you tell me where I am? And he says, yes, you're over there. Now I take that that he's considering me to be rude. And so I grab the map and I run over to him and I apologize for not coming there directly. And I hand him the map and I say, sir, can you tell me where I am? And now he's got a little grin on his face and he says, yes, now you're over here. So now I know he's just messing with me. But he takes a look at the map and just like me, he can't make heads or tails of it. But being a tad wiser than I'll ever be, he looked at me and he said, I know pretty much everyone on the reservation. Who are you going to pick up? I can probably draw you a better map. And I know at that moment that the missionary told me her name, but he didn't write it down. And I didn't write it down or put it to memory. And for the life of me, I cannot remember who it is. And so a little dejected, I take back the map and I start, I thank him for his time and I start walking back to the car. And he speaks out after me and he says, son, where are you going? And I looked at him and I said, to be perfectly honest, sir, I have no clue. And it's at that moment that he asked me one of the most profound questions you could ever be asked. And he said, well, if you don't know where you're going, how in the world are you going to know when you get there? If you don't know where you're going, how in the world are you going to know when you get there? I have the privilege of leading an organization called Shepherding the Next Generation. Shepherding the Next Generation is a free, I want to make that very clear, very, very quickly, a free membership organization made up of evangelical pastors and ministry leaders from all over the country. We currently have over 1,100 throughout the states who are a part of what we do. And they are a part of what we do, I believe, because we have defined a purpose. We know where we want to get to. So I can tell you that, and I'll explain that to you as we go along. But I can also tell you that we also have a roadmap on how to get there. And it's a proven roadmap. It's one that we know has been successful. And I want to share that with you too. That's what we're going to do today. So while I'm passing these out real quick, I, uh, I'm old enough that I know how to do, or I'm young enough that I know how to do PowerPoint, but I'm too old to know how to make it work with me. Thank you. I'll t keep one there, a couple. Um, so my PowerPoint is in hard copy for you today. I, I've attempted to do this a couple of times by myself, 
and if I get away from the computer too long, then the computer shuts it, it down, and, and then it's terrible. So we're going to do the, uh, yeah, speed up, right? Yeah, spoken like a true pastor. Or are you a ruling elder? Okay. <laughs> here, here is, um, thank you so much. You're kind. Shepherding the next generation has a singular focus. And we're not going to look at a slide yet. The singular focus is this. And that is that this, our goal, the members that are a part of us, are all committed to caring for and speaking out on behalf of children growing up in poverty here in the United States. That's who we are. And uh, if you look at the second slide, and we're going to work our way um, across each time, but this one says, we are an incubator of ideas, a motivator of the faith community, and a linker of organizations. We do this work in two different tracks. The one that gets me up every day and gets me excited about what God is allowing me to do is the fact that we are helping the church become a bigger part of the solution. I'm going to take you down a philosophical walk just for a moment because I think this is so key to what is happening in the United States today. If you look at education in the United States, in, in education, we, um, we were the beginners I've got something for you here, sir. We were the beginners of education here in the U.S. I don't know if you church historians are aware of this, but Sunday school initially wasn't to teach Bible stories. Sunday school originally was to teach children how to read so they could read the Bible stories themselves. And so... Early on, all of the schools were, were connected to the church, and as they expanded education, the church expanded education. It wasn't until the late 1800s that public schools started to become a part of our society. It wasn't until the, about 1920 that most all of our country had public schools there. And the church's response initially was one of two things. Either let them have it, and we transferred or, or transitioned Sunday school from teaching how to read to teaching the Bible stories. Or we took the attitude of, you can teach the masses, but we're going to teach our own. And so the private school process began. If you look at social service in the United States, the first social service agency was the local church. If a neighbor, somebody in your neighborhood had an issue or needed help, their plan was, or their way to receive that help, was to go out and to identify a local church and a pastor and try to um, get the help from there. It wasn't until the New Deal that government started to be involved there also. 
And again, if you look at it, the response of the church was, in most cases, to give much of it away. Let government do this. Quite frankly, it was a, it was a break for those of us who were pastors because we now had a government agency that we could send people to to receive the help. Now, I, I know, because I've been involved in this kind of work most of my adult life, that churches have continued to be involved. It need to be, very honestly. But here's where I'm going philosophically after that little quick history lesson. If you look at how much of an impact the church used to have on its community, it was its education base, it was its spiritual base, and it was its providing base. And you look at how government took much of that, other than the spiritual, much of the education, much of the social welfare issues away from the church, is it any wonder that we have lost some of the influence over our communities that we used to have? Now, if that were the end of the story, that's, that's not good. But the other part of the story isn't all that good either. Because government's had education now for decades. Government's had the primary focus of social service for decades. And guess what? They're failing miserably at both. They're not doing a good job. And we as believers understand why. Because if you give somebody money or provide housing or provide education, but you're not providing for the whole person, you're not providing for the character building, you're not providing for the soul, you are not doing the whole job. And you can't departmentalize all these aspects. The church has to be involved. The church has to have influence. So that's why when I talk about being an incubator of ideas, what we're trying to do is help our members and the church as a whole to look at what we can do in our current environment to have an impact on children and give them those early interventions that they desperately need to break out of the cycle of poverty and to do it in the name of Christ and to bring salvation into the picture in the process. That's why I love what I do. But we are also, this is the uh, next slide, we bring a voice to our policymakers encouraging investments in proven strategies. I, my life's complicated. I live in Michigan. My office is in Washington, D.C. And here I am in Dallas. But I am a former legislator in Michigan. And I actually knew our, our last governor, and I know now our current governor. I wish I could go to Governor Whitner right now and say, Governor, you don't have to fund early interventions for children anymore in the state of Michigan because the church has it covered. Would that be incredible? But the reality is we're not even at 1%. Now, over the last decade, Things have been, we have been ramping up and we have been getting better and better at this. But the reality is we're still not at more than 1%. 
And that's national, by the way. I, I'm not picking on Michigan for that. There isn't a state that I'm aware of that has gotten past that number yet. But here's what's happening. Before we get into the public policy part, here's what's happening. Are you aware that there are two states right now that have already told their departments that watch over foster care systems to go out and to recruit individuals or ask churches to help them recruit foster parents? The two states are Colorado and Arizona. And there are four other states that are looking at it right now as a possibility. And the reason that they're doing that is pretty simple. They have finally figured out that if they can get a foster parent or parents out of a faith community and they can be recruited or trained by that faith community and supported by that faith community, the chances of that child having a good parent goes way up. And we all get it too. I mean, here's the other positives of it. You're not only getting a good foster parent, but you're getting that community wrapped around that family that are going to support it. And when the child ages out, hopefully they've de developed so many relationships within that community, and, and it, will be, it, it may be something that goes on for years to come. And... I'm seeing now ministries starting up in the states that haven't even gone that direction yet that are encouraging churches to get involved in this. And I think it's incredible. What a great opportunity. Um, so government is starting to look at us, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But the fourth slide, last one on the page, talks about how we do what we do. Number one, we are research-based. We'll talk about that. Number two, we're biblically based. And number three, we're a conduit of best practices. Next page. Here are uh, the two top slides are just two of the different programs that are going on um, that we have studied and we have watched the results. There's a program at, um, there's a, program, I want to point out the one at the top, Nurse Family Partnership, just for a second. And I want to tell you the story about this, because this is an example of what shepherding was able to do from a government perspective. Nurse Family Partnership, very honestly, very out front, is not a faith-based organization. But what they do is they put a trained older woman alongside a young woman during her first pregnancy who is in poverty. And they train, they guide, they direct, they provide resources to that person. That, by the way, is Titus 2.4. Older women train the younger women. I mean, I love it when government uses a biblical model and they don't even know they're doing it. But it's, a, it's an absolute reality. And this program has proven through years of it being done that it reduces child abuse by 50%. Imagine that. 
And, and, and it doesn't take uh, a real long time to figure that out because if somebody's there to talk the mother down from the ledge or the, the two parents down from the ledge, then that is an incredible um, way of making sure that that child does not get shaken or in anger uh, tampered with, however you want to say that. This program was in trouble several years ago. And at that time, the Republicans held both the House and the Senate, and uh, they did not hold the presidency. But the reason this was in trouble was a couple of things. One, it was sunsetting in the, at the end of September, the beginning of October, during an election year. Now, if you know anything about politics, if you know anything about government, you know that there's at least one party that is never going to vote for a tax increase two months ahead of a, um, an election. So it, it was going to be in trouble if we let it sunset there was not going to be any opportunity to move it forward. There was another problem, and, and I don't, please don't take this as, um, as politicizing. I'm just wanting to give you the truth here. The other reason it was in trouble was a couple years earlier, it had been enveloped into a thing called the Affordable Care Act. For those of you that aren't familiar with the Affordable Care Act, it is also known as Obamacare. And again, for Republicans, that, is, that was poison to vote for. Even if it was a good program, inside of the larger program, it was not something they could, they could uh, work with. So our strategy was to go to the speaker and meet with him personally and try to share with him the circumstances. Now the speaker uh, at that time was Speaker Boehner. He, um, he is not an evangelical, but he is a devout Catholic. And as we are sharing with his chief of staff back in his own area, and that's what we do. We bring uh, members from Ohio there to meet with him, and I join them if I'm available or some staff member joins. And we were talking. And this chief of staff looked at us and said, I think the speaker would love this program. And I'm going to share it with him. Now, I didn't know the chief of staff at that time. And so I didn't know whether it was going to go any further than what we had just done or not. So we brought our members to Washington, D.C. to meet with his staff and to meet with the speaker at his office in D.C. As we're sharing this, his policy director starts pointing her finger at us saying, you're the people that talked to Frank, the chief of staff back in Ohio. Now I like Frank. But Frank had given them all the details, given them the suggestions that we had made, and here's what we were able to do. We were able to get um, 
just an extension, so it got beyond the election early enough so it wasn't a part of the election issue. So they voted on an extension early in that year. They got the extension to move it past, and they made it a standalone program again, giving the Republicans and the Democrats an ability to vote for it. And it passed both the House and the Senate, and it moved on uh, to the president's desk, and he signed it. And then after the election, we were able to go back, and before the extension sunsetted, we were able to get a five-year program for that. And so, again, here is a program that we know reduces child abuse that Shepherding's members were able to be a part of. And um, that's, that's uh, why we do what we do. And again, we, we don't suggest a program unless we've vetted it and we know that it, research-wise, is having a positive result. So those are some examples of why we do that. We also talked about being biblically based. So I gave you four different um, verses. I could have given you plenty more. But these are reasons why we do what we do as, um, as a membership of pastors and ministry leaders across the country. We believe strongly that we need to be a part of this and we need to be a part of the solution. So here are some of the ways that we are part of a solution. We are adopting public schools all over the country. If you are doing it, God bless you. If you aren't doing it, I can tell you about five different programs right now that we have vetted and we know are working. And out of those five, one of them will work for your church. I'm almost guaranteed. And here's the interesting thing. 20 years ago, if I had have been a pastor in my local community and I would have gone to the elementary school in my neighborhood and said, hi, I'm a pastor at such and such church and I want to bring my members in to help you. The principal, even if he or she were a brother or sister in Christ, would have had to say, ooh, what a great idea, but I can't let you do it. It's this little thing called separation of church and state. That was 20 years ago. Do you know what's happening today? One of the programs, one of the adoption programs, is one that comes right out of my area in Michigan. It's called Kids Hope. It's a wonderful program. They are, I believe, in over 250 churches or elementary schools with churches that have adopted them right now. Two years ago when I talked to them, they had a waiting list of 1,500 principals that had called them and said, can you please find me a church? Jump ahead to this spring, I found out the waiting list is now over 3,000. Here's the difference. Here's why this is happening in the United States today. Number one, and, and I think this is from the perspective of the public school. The needs that they are facing are that much greater than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Number two, the funding to deal with those needs has not come anywhere close to matching what they are facing. And number three, and this is critical, 
the churches have figured out how they can be a part of these public schools without creating a problem with church and state. Now, does that mean that they don't get to evangelize? No. It does mean that they don't get to evangelize in that school during school hours. But my church, we have all kinds of events at our building that we bring the people to and we invite them to and they get to do all kinds of cool things through our church. Even summer camp, one of our great church camps actually does summer camp at our place. And we're able to get all these kids there. And when they're in our building, boy, can we share the gospel. And boy, do we. So adopting a public school. There's all kinds of need in your own communities. You can do this, and we can help you find the, the program that will work best for you. Uh, partnering with churches in pockets of poverty. Here's what I mean by that. If we just advance early learning, meaning preschool programs that are public preschools, they will get the vocabulary that they need to have a better chance of being successful in education. Here's a reality. Here's part of that research. The average child in poverty walks into a kindergarten classroom in the United States with approximately a 500-word vocabulary. A child coming out of one of our homes or one of our parishioners' homes will walk into a kindergarten class with at least an 1,100-word vocabulary. More than double. So that's why preschool is critical. We've got to help parents who have no idea what to do with their child when it comes to making sure that they're getting the vocabulary. It was never um, modeled in front of them how to talk to their children, how to take turns with their children, how to um, how to do this without using the television. And, and by the way, research says that television doesn't give children vocabulary. I, I don't fully understand that, but an inanimate object talking has nowhere near the impact of mom or dad or grandma or even a daycare person talking to that child, looking them in the eyes and communicating directly. That's where vocabulary is built. But what if, what if we can get pockets or preschools at churches in pockets of poverty? And what if churches of means, not necessarily in that same neighborhood, but maybe in the suburb of that city, will go to the pastor the two pastors will get together and say, let's do this together. We can provide you with people. We can provide you with resources. You provide the building, and you run it. We don't want to come in and take over. This isn't, this isn't the great white church coming in to be the great hope for the inner city. This is a pastor and a pastor working side by side, whether they're both white, whether one's African-American, one's Hispanic, whatever it happens to be. They're working together. It's a partnership. 
and the pastor of the church within the poverty community needs to lead it. Because that pastor knows what those kids need far better than somebody outside. But we can provide the resources. It's happening. One of the, uh, one of the coolest experiences I've had is working alongside a couple of the churches that are doing that and making it happen. Value-added vacation Bible school. Can I tell you what there are three problems that happen for children growing up in poverty during the summer months in the United States? Number one, learning loss. Parents tell me, or excuse me, teachers tell me that it takes anywhere from six to eight weeks each beginning of the school year just to get the kids back to where they were when they left school in May because there was no educational activity for the three months of the summer. Nobody was working with those kids in any form or fashion. That's number one. Number two, nutrition. Most of these children are getting free lunches. Many of them are getting a free breakfast. And at home, not so much. So these kids are struggling. Number three, exercise. Now, I don't know what life was like for you all growing up, but my mom basically kicked me out of the house after breakfast. And most times, she didn't want to see me again until supper. And I was that kind of child. And I'm pretty sure the moms on my block all took a day, so they only had to deal with us once at lunch. But you can't do that anymore in our culture. You can't let kids just outside run around, do whatever. Particularly in pockets of poverty. And so they are stuck inside. They are next to the TV with nothing else to do. So you got three things that, believe it or not, Vacation Bible School could address. And what's so exciting for me is we have enough members uh, of shepherding in some towns that they are doing, as a corporate group uh, or a ministerial association, they are coming together and making sure all 10 weeks of vacation Bible school time period are taken by a different church in that community. So that these kids are all allowed to have nutrition dealt with all 10 weeks. They start with an energy bar in the morning. It may not be anything more than a granola bar, but it's more than what they'd have gotten at home. Maybe a granola bar and an apple or an orange. And then they get a, a meal before they go at lunchtime that the church provides. They have exercise during their vacation Bible school. So they get them out running, moving, doing activities. And last, instead of just teaching the Bible story for those kids, they bring in their high schoolers and they have the kids read the story to the high schooler. So the high schooler can encourage. The high schooler can help correct when they don't know what a, 
a word. And so they're reading. And they're playing math games. Just things to keep the intellectual move going. How incredible would that be if you lived in a community where the churches all worked together to make sure the kids were not only getting all those three things, but in the process of getting all those, they're being shared the gospel, and they're being shared the principles of God's word and the character building that God's word brings. I'm so excited about that happening all across the country. We do shared practices, collaborations, uh, and we use our voice and our name. I've got a, two or three things that I just wanted to point out to you because I'm so excited about them. Uh, one is Undivided the Movie. If you go to YouTube, you, um, and, and type in Undivided, you'll find... you'll find a story of South Lake Church in Portland, Oregon. Undivided is a ministry that Portland decided to adopt, not a typical elementary school. They decided to adopt a high school in Portland, Oregon. It is absolutely incredible what they have done for this school. And there's an entire movie about it but there are YouTubes that, that um, just are pretty incredible if you, if you wanted to see that. Another one you may want to look up is Teacher Residency in Memphis, Tennessee. Here is a church, excuse me, uh, uh, it's actually a Southern Baptist University, but the teacher, I think, is, he's either Methodist or Presbyterian. I, I don't know which, to be perfectly honest. But it's a master's program in urban education. And the young people that apply for it, and it doesn't have to be young, but most of them are, are just graduates out of college. They apply to get in. Their master's program is free. As long as they apply at the end of it for a teaching job in the Memphis public schools, and if accepted, teach for three years. Right now, the Memphis public schools have over 90 teachers who have a master's in urban education and are there because they have a passion for children and a passion for Christ. I think it's going to do some incredible things in an inner city. And Memphis was one of the worst in the country. But things are moving. Here's why, and now I want to get to the roadmap. Here's, here's why this works so well. Number one, as I talked about, we're research-based. We're research-based not only for what we fight for with public policy, but what we encourage for the church to do. We want to make sure it's a good idea. I can... I could take 20 minutes, and I won't, to talk about things the church has started that did not work. And why in the world do we want to go back to those kinds of things? Let's look at what does work, and let's make sure that we're going with that. 
But when I talk about being an unexpected messenger, one of the things I don't know if I've mentioned already or not, but I'm a former legislator. And as a legislator, I was on the education committee for my state. And I can tell you right now that 90% of the people that came in to talk to the education committee on policy in the state of Michigan, 90% of them were out of one of three groups. They were either teachers whose jobs depended on the policy we were going to vote on. They were parents of children who wanted the program that they were being talked about. Or they were hired guns by one of those two groups. And what I mean by that is lobbyists. But what if a pastor came in and said, I'm not here because this, this helps my children. I'm not here because this is my job. I'm not here uh, on behalf of any teachers or children or families. I'm here because I believe research shows this program works if you do point A, point B, and point C. And if you give me the roadmap, if you make sure that all of the pieces of the roadmap are there, this will help the state of Michigan. I've got to tell you, when a pastor would do that, anywhere we have gone in this country, the people in the committee members for the legislature sit up a little taller and listen a little closer because it's an unexpected voice but it's a powerful voice within your community. Now I'm gonna take you on a curve that you may not expect it. Believe it or not, the thing I'm working on, much of my time right now, is the 2020 US Census. Now I know that that may shock you. Can I get whoever passed out before to help me maybe? I'm going to give you just a brief on the census so that you have that. And I'm also being, uh, I'm being proactive and I'm also handing you a membership form for shepherding the next generation. Uh, it's completely up to you. As I said, it's absolutely free. And I'll give you some uh, codes about it before. But I didn't, it, it would be foolish of me not to spend an hour talking to you and not Make sure you had one of those uh, in case you wanted to write it out. But here's, um, here's quickly why the census is important. In 2010, it's estimated that over one million children growing up in poverty were missed. Let me say that again. It's estimated that over one million children growing up in poverty were not counted on the 2010 census. That means that if a community had a boatload of kids that are in poverty, but they didn't get counted, guess what? Programs that would help them were no thank you, were no longer available or weren't available to them. Because all of that happens 
And I've got some pens up here if people need them. Got it. I'll, I'll get it to you. Um, number two. This is a mandate of the U.S. Constitution. Now, I, I told you I'm a legislator. I probably should have also told you I was a Republican legislator. And I'm a part of the party that thinks the Constitution is pretty important. And because I think it's important, I think we ought to not pick and choose what we like about the Constitution and what we don't like. And so if it's a demand, it's something that we ought to fight for. But here's why that is so critical. And then I want to get into how the churches, we're encouraging churches to help. If people, if we don't have a good understanding of how much is going on or where the people are, how can our leadership of the PCA know where to put their resources? Think about that for a minute. You know how businesses all across this country utilize, will utilize the 2020 census to determine where they're going to open stores, where they're going to open restaurants, where they're going to put educational resources. All these kinds of things are all focused in on this one event that happens every 10 years. And why isn't the church doing the exact same thing? We are finally at a point where we have the capability to take that information and use it to be more effective with God's kingdom dollars to make sure that we're doing God's kingdom work in the right places and in the right way. And here's what I'm encouraging churches to do all across the country. This is the first census that they are going to use technology as the main means of getting the registrations done. That means that they're wanting you to go online and do your registration online. Well, how many poor families have that capability? I mean, to me, we're almost putting them at greater risk of being missed under this circumstance. So what we're encouraging churches to do, October, excuse me, April 1 in 2020 is going to be the launch of the new census, and we're encouraging sometime in April for churches to look at having sign-up Sundays, where you encourage your members to bring their laptops who have a knowledge and ability to do it and sit down with families and help them register and get connected. There are all kinds of safeguards. I know that there are so many concerns about sharing information with the government, but you need to be aware that they cannot use that information in any form or fashion to identify somebody who isn't supposed to be here or identify somebody who might have um, a legality issue. They can only use the corporate numbers. They can't use the individual. It is safe. And so we are encouraging churches to help. And, and I just wanted to get that out before we got done. I want to go to the shepherd's code for a minute. Number one, as I mentioned, it's absolutely free. 
We have never asked a single member, nor will we ever ask a member to fund Shepherding the Next Generation. We have funders who believe what we do is critical and important, and therefore uh, they take care of that. It's not an end run to try to get on your church budget. We have never, nor we, will we ever, ask churches to support us. Number two, we never use a member's name without their permission. As I mentioned, we have over 1,100. If I brought, and I think I have the letter here, if any of you, or I've got it at my booth. If any of you want to see it, uh, that home visiting program that I was talking about earlier, at that time we had around 900 members. Only, I think we only had 155 decide they wanted to be a part of that letter. Every time we ask for your name to be used, you have the right to read what is going to be sent, and you have the right to say yes or no. If you say no, your name doesn't go on it. We don't call you and twist your arm. We respect you for what you want to be a part of and what you don't. Number four, if you ever are asked to travel to your state capital or to D.C., we cover your costs for you to do so. And I'm going to go to number five also. And we also provide staffing for any event that we are a part of. The reason we do what we do is because we know your voices matter when it comes to public policy. We know you're the right people to be involved in the church being a bigger part of the solution. And that's why we invite you to be a part of it. We'll never ask you for your money. We will ask you for your voice if you're willing to give it. We'll ask you for your ideas if you have them that we can share with others uh, so we can do more work for you. Thank you for the opportunity of coming. I wanted to end with a verse that I, I absolutely love. It's Jeremiah, it says, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart, which will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.